Oh, let's get it. Monday, January 25th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, a podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a great week outside of podcast land. I am still on leave. Not a bad time to do it as we are in transition here at the VA, as well as the rest of the government. As they depart, I want to thank Secretary Wilkie and his staff for the time they dedicated to this department. And we will welcome the new staff that will fulfill these very important roles once they are confirmed. As of this week, we will have an acting secretary that should be announced by the time this episode drops. I just don't have the name on me at the time of this recording. It is still January, which means our Desert Storm 30 series is still ongoing. For the entire month, blogs.va.gov is celebrating the stories of those that served in Desert Storm and Desert Shield. From our Veteran of the Day posts to stories about the origin of the chocolate chip uniform, to what the Coasties were doing, to our last podcast with Marine Corps veteran Scott Stump. All month, we are celebrating those that served in the decisive conflict that ousted the Saddam Hussein regime occupation of Kuwait. When you get a chance, just type in Desert Storm in the search bar or go to blogs.va.gov forward slash vantage forward slash 30, the number 30, hyphen years, hyphen desert, hyphen storm. Matter of fact, a great interview with Colin Powell was just released where he talked about his conversations with General Schwarzkopf and about the overall strategy they planned and executed. It's good stuff. We received about five ratings this week, as well as one review. This comes from Thunder6 with an exclamation point. Love that. Says five stars. My new favorite podcast. I highly encourage all veterans to subscribe to this podcast. I retired from the Army in 2011, and in this age of polarized culture, news, and other media, I was struggling against the negativity of it all. Born the Battle has created a great place to rejoin my tribe of the military. The veteran stories of struggles and success, and even just reminiscing about deployments, has become a great way to reconnect with my positive service experiences. I recommend all vets to turn off the... (laughs) I recommend all vets turn off the news and listen to this podcast. Thanks, Tanner. Outstanding job. Thunder Six, this is quite possibly the best review that I've received about this podcast so far. What you describe this podcast as is what I've strived to make it. And I'm glad that it resonates in that way with you. You're right. In the current landscape of polarized everything, I wanted to see if we here on this podcast, can build something positive based on the values that all veterans have in common and try to help each other out in the process. Thunder Six, I appreciate the feedback. And moreover, I appreciate that you put that feedback back out into the world. And if I could pin this as the, and if I could pin this as the review that this show strives to be every week, I would. If you agree with Thunder Six, or even if you don't, Please consider smashing that subscribe button and leaving a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. In doing so, you'll either be letting me know what you would like to see out of this podcast or helping push this podcast up higher in the algorithms. 
giving more veterans the chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. As for news releases during this time, there really isn't much out there other than that VA and the Minister of Defense in Israel are sharing best practices in veteran health care. However, this episode will come after the inauguration, so there may be more that I've posted since this monologue recording. Maybe some key appointment announcements have already been made, or not. Who knows? Either way, you could find all the press releases at va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. That's P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L, all one word. All right, so I sat down and recorded this week's guest right before the holiday season, and this was the second interview with my new gear, new microphone, new mixer. So much like episode 222, I kind of sound like I'm recording in a bathroom. For that, I apologize, and I don't think I have any more recordings like this, I think. However, you can hear our guest perfectly, and that's the most important thing. Our guest is an Army veteran. He was a combat correspondent during Vietnam, and he's a professional author who has sold over 1.4 million copies of his books. He is best known for The 13th Valley, and in 1982, it became a New York Times bestseller, a National Book Award finalist, and has been described as a literary cornerstone for the Vietnam generation. In addition to writing books, As a Vietnam historian, he writes about what he sees as misinformation about the Vietnam War, and he is also an avid hiker and blogs about hiking over 70. He is Army veteran John Del Vecchio. Enjoy. Yeah, I'm going to start recording since it it seems like uh, we we have conquered technology today. Finally. Thank you. Oh man. Um, now we're going to get into your writing career for a bit, but before your writing career, before your post-military career, uh, mm-hmm. you're born in the battle. We always, we always go way back, way back to that first time that you knew that the military was going to be the next phase of your life. And I say that in that way, because, uh, especially with your generation, it wasn't always a voluntary, um, for you. When was that for you? When did you know the military was going to be the next phase of your life? My grandfather uh, was in the uh, Italian cavalry uh, going back uh, to 1900. Uh, oh wow! So uh, then he came to this country in uh, in 1902. Um, so uh, you know, so there is some experience there. But for myself, and of course at the time, I graduated high school in 1965 um, and ended up uh, going to college. Uh, I, I was thinking that I was going to go into the military. I was the fourth of four children. Um, uh, my uh, brother and two sisters were in college at the time, uh, which meant that it was a, uh, there was a real financial struggle, um, as far as, uh, being able to keep up, you know, for my father to sure. uh, be able to keep up with, with all these, uh, tuition payments, even though, yeah. I mean, if you look at tuition payments today compared to tuition payments, then, you know, it, it looks like, it looks like a drop in the bucket. But, uh, <laughs> what, what was it then at, at that point, roughly? When I started in uh, September 65, it was $3,200 a year. Oh, wow. Right, so. That might, that might be four or five books now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, 
you know, it was just, well, uh, in the last year of my daughter's uh, education, um, she was at the University of Puget Sound. Um, okay. Know uh, it well. I'm a Washington, I'm a, I'm a native of Washington State. Oh, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, and I have a son and um, daughter-in-law and two grandchildren up in Seatora Woolley, if, uh, if you know that area. Yeah. Yeah. Her tuition the last year, I think, was 42000 And she graduated in 2007. So I think- <laughs> Who knows what it is now? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure they're up close to 60000 a year now. I mean, it's just mm. incredible how-, how any, Anyway, yeah, yeah, going back to 65, <laughs> I, I told my father I was going in the military. It didn't make any sense for me to um, go into- uh, uh, to be going to school- my father uh, was a was a very organized person, um, basically very gentle. Had a great uh, personality, um, uh, and very seldom asked us to do anything for him. Uh, you know, he, he believed in leading by example, um, and so you know. There was not a lot of uh, harsh discipline. Actually, there was very little harsh discipline in the household. Um, and uh, it was more a matter that you wanted to follow him because uh, because you just believed in him uh, so much. Yeah. And it was one of the few things that he asked me to do. He said, look, I want you to start college. And if it does not work out, you can always go into the military. So that was in 1965, the reason why I started. Um and I, I went to Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. By the time you got into maybe 67, late 67, uh, and then uh, into 68, um, you know, things were, uh, things were coming apart in, throughout the country. I, I had a lot of questions about what was going on. You know, it, it really probably wasn't until 68 that uh, began watching what was going on um, in Vietnam, uh, in the news, uh, the differences, uh, you know, there were also a lot of uh, riots going on at that time. Uh, yeah. So uh, that was kind of very parallel to what's, you know, some of the things going on today. Sure. Um, it was a very formative time. Uh, very much so. And uh, a lot of the things that are going on today came out of that time. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, um Got into the spring of 69, uh, probably, I think it was March, so uh, maybe three months before I was to graduate, um, and uh, was called up for my draft fiscal. And uh, I remember saying to them, uh, well, you know, when would I expect to be drafted? Uh, and they told me, well, right after graduation. Um, so uh, at that point, um, you know, it was actually in some ways a relief. It meant that I didn't have to look for a job, do any uh, interviewing with companies. Uh, um, you know, I, it was, there was a certain freedom knowing that Uncle Sam had a job for me. Yeah. Now, I didn't get my draft notice until November 4th, 69. So, there's this entire summer where I'm waiting for it, wondering if I'm going to be called up. Uh, at this time, you had the um, uh, the draft lottery uh, by birthday uh, go into effect. 
although it really didn't affect me because I was already in that system and already knew I was going to be called up. Um, and, but th- there was, it was a very kind of weird time. And uh, I spent most of that summer um, building a ski lodge up in Vermont. Finally, in late September, you know, this is the time when you, as a student, you're ready to go back to school. And uh, we're pretty much finished as far as I could get the, um, as far as what I could do in, uh, in the construction at that time uh, with a ski lodge. And I'm ready to go back and do something. And I still haven't been called up. And I'm going to just drop back to Lafayette for a minute. Um, uh, I had in several classes, professors that were extremely anti-war. They were so anti-war, they announced at the beginning of the, of the uh, semester, we're not going to teach this class. You can only learn things on your own. You can't learn anything by me teaching you. Therefore, this is open to dis- the class is open to discussion. And they did nothing. <laughs> what? Yes, yes. And in that class, and, and there were a couple of them this way, and in those classes, they did nothing except talk about anti-war stuff, which I found to be a major turnoff because, okay, I didn't know a hell of a lot about what was going on in Southeast Asia, but I knew a lot more than they did. And I knew that these people were idiots. Um, this was uh, <laughs> This was so offensive. And also not being a particularly bright student uh, at the time um, and realizing that I should have withdrawn from the classes, I just stopped going and uh, ended up flunking those classes um, because I stopped going and didn't withdraw. Um, so all those things had, had some bearing. But, but the main part of that bearing is that it made me want to know what was going on in Southeast Asia. It made me want to learn it inside and out to know- Because you weren't getting it there. I wasn't getting it there. And, and what I was seeing in the media um, was, uh, you know, I thought very skewed. Uh, I had friends who, had, uh, who were there. I had uh, um, uh, college classmates with brothers, uh, um, in Vietnam. So we were getting a lot of stories that were very different from what we're seeing in the media. And yeah. I wanted to know. So actually in September of 68, I started applying for uh, jobs to um, go to Vietnam as a journalist. Uh, now, I didn't have a background in journalism. Um, but Is that uh, your major? Did you have any? My major was psychology. And okay. But what happened with the journalism was I decided to apply. I wanted to go to Southeast Asia. I wasn't being drafted. Uh, I wanted to know what was going on. And um, I ended up applying to the New York Times. Uh, late in October, I got uh, a letter asking me to come in for an interview. Um, and by the time I was able to I get back to them. I received my draft notice on November 4th. Um, so threw all that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing that you had no background in journalism, just coming out of college with a different type of degree. And the New York times was like, yeah, we'll take you on as a journalist. Well, it wasn't so much take me on, but they, but they were willing to interview me anyway. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, no, even yeah. to get to that point, it's, yeah. it's very, yeah. very interesting. All these things kind of roll together. Um, 
was sorry, got my draft notice on uh, November 4th uh, and was inducted on December 4th. Um, and in that pre-basic training period, uh, you know, and they put you through this battery of tests and all these other things. Uh, and I came out great. Uh, they, they wanted to send me to uh, uh, language school and uh, various other things like that. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do that. And I asked them, do you have anything in journalism? And he said, well, yes, we do. I said, but you have to sign up for a third year. And I said, that sounds fine with me. And I signed up for the third year, became regular army. Wow. Uh, and after basic training was sent to uh, DINFOS, uh, the Defense Information School. Outstanding. Which turned out to be the best school I ever went to. And still, to this day, the best school I've ever been in. It was the best program. The, uh, the professors were outstanding. Of course, there was a certain force that they had. Um, you know, we were in school eight hours a day. Uh, we were expected to study about four hours a night. Yet we were still expected to do, you know, guard duty and some various military functions and be a soldier. Yeah. Yeah. But it was such an outstanding school. I now I'm I'm also a Denfellows alum myself. I think, and I've I've been to universities and, and you know a couple other you know Syracuse, Arizona State, some top journalism schools. Mm-hmm. I think Denfellows, from a technical aspect of how to tell a story is the best school yes that you could and it's you know it's dod it's it's but that but they tell you that that you know the very technical aspects i think university was really good in the in the why why tell the story or 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 the certain mental aspects of storytelling but i think from a technical aspect infos was probably the best school well yes and, and actually in uh 69 uh, 69, 70, actually, I guess I was there in 70 uh, no. after basic training. Um, they had the reputation as being the second best uh, applied journalism course in the country. Uh, wow. So exactly as you're saying, it was applied journalism. It wasn't uh, you know theory of journalism or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Personally, I credit uh, Dimpos with teaching me how to write. So you were sent to Vietnam the, like as soon as you graduated Dimpos or within well, that year, that first year. They wouldn't let me go. They, they wanted to send me to Okinawa to start a newspaper over there. Oh. Um, and those of us uh, who were Army, uh, there was probably, oh, let's say there were 80 of us who were Army. And there were three of us, three that were chosen to go to Vietnam. None of them wanted to go. And at least two of us who really wanted to go had to get our Congress uh, men involved to get our orders changed so we could go to Vietnam. Um, so it was, and we worked through the, um, Sergeant major at the school. Um, yeah. he's like, you're, yeah. I mean, if you want to go, <laughs> well, isn't that strange? It was actually hard to go. Um, yeah. you know, you, you actually had to force people to let you go. I was on a mission. I was on a mission to find out what this was all about. Um, yeah. And when I got to uh, the replacement station um, in Vietnam, uh, you know, you're waiting, you know, have no idea where they're going to send you. Um, the buddy that I came in with uh, from Dinfos uh, was assigned to Stars and Stripes uh, in Saigon, and I was assigned to the 101st Airborne. So, so you're, you're with the 101st uh, in, in 70 in Vietnam, 
Now, I can't remember as his interview was over a year ago, but were you there the same time Dale Day was? Uh, Dale was there uh, earlier than I was. Dale okay. was there, if I recall correctly, uh, I think it was there 67, 68. Yeah. Uh, Dale's a good friend of mine. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he, uh, uh, he and his wife, Julia, uh, publish my books now. Yeah, no, they're they're they're, they're outstanding, yeah. um, and actually, you came highly recommended from him. So uh, that was like, yeah, absolutely, I'll, I'll have a chat with with John here. <laughs> um, similar to him, you were also awarded a Bronze Star with a V. Um, yes. During your time in Vietnam, do you mind tracing that day for us? Um, no, not not at all. Um, when I first got to headquarters of uh, the 101st. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to take over what they called uh, sort of a little newspaper, uh, a daily newspaper called the Airborne Dateline. And they wanted me to take that over. And for the first three weeks, I spent uh, those weeks at headquarters doing this newspaper, um, which I just hated. I, I hated being there. Uh, it was a matter of recording uh, AFVN uh, radio and writing stories up from their radio stories, uh, putting them on a mimeograph sheet and uh, uh, then mimeographing out 6,000 copies each night. Uh, mm. And I, I wouldn't talk to, I, I wouldn't socialize with anybody. And, and I let the major know uh, right away that, you know, this, is, this isn't what I was there to do. Um, and that went on for three weeks and uh, they would barbecue every night up there. Um, headquarters was very, uh, very secure. Um, yeah. And, um, and I wouldn't go to them. Uh, I, 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 you know, as I say, I was on a mission to find out what was going on. I, and, and I can't tell you why I was on this mission. All right. I, I don't know what it was about me, but this was in my head that I had to learn this. After three weeks, uh, said, you know, you've got to come to uh, our barbecue tonight. And again, I repeated to him, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll do everything that I that I need to do to uh, for this job and I will do it well. But, you know, this, this is not what I'm here for. And he said, no, you got to come. Um, this is your last day here. Uh, I'm sending you down to first brigade. Um, and so the next day I was off to first brigade uh, did you and, go to that barbecue? Yes, I did go to that barbecue. <laughs> 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 yes, and, and I did, and I did have a beer with him. <laughs> good, very good. By the next day, I was down uh, at First Brigade. Uh, our, our three major uh, infantry units were first of the five hundred first, second of the three two seventh, and second of the five hundred second. I spent most of my time with units from second of the five hundred second. Uh, second most with uh, second and three two seventh, and I think I only went out once or twice with uh, first the five zero first. Although some of the best pictures I got uh, uh, came with first the five zero first. Uh, but anyway, I'd gotten pretty used to being an infantryman first and a uh, journalist uh, photographer second. Real quick, now when when I was a, a combat camera and I would get to, into a unit, it. it there was a feeling out process with that unit. You know, are you going to fit your, your journalist? Do I take a, a man off my mission to bring a photographer? It was that, was there a kind of a feeling out process even in Vietnam or were they, were they just happy to have another person? 
Uh, both. <laughs> both are true. Um, happy to have another person. And uh, early on, particularly, it was a feeling out process. Uh, I traveled um, with units, many units, multiple times. And towards the end of my tour, um, I had units that uh, I, I had commanders that would request that I would come out with them. Yeah. Not because I was a journalist, but because I had so much experience in the field. Yeah, um, tune leaders or and one particular company commander, they wanted me out there because they knew I knew the AO and uh, wanted to know my opinion on what was going on. Yeah, uh, which would I mean when I think about that, it just amazes me because I, as an attachment, the best way to embed with a with a unit like that is just to do everything they do. Yeah, you know? and that's exactly what I did. And, yeah. and so on this particular particular time. Uh, and it's described in uh, 13th Valley, although of course uh, it's fictionalized there. Okay. Um, but um, we were coming down a trail. Um, it, uh, we had had uh, action uh, the day before in this area. Uh, we we're just off uh, a ridgeline coming down to a saddle uh, and then going up um, to the uh, next, uh, next hill. And uh, as we came down, of course, we're in single file. We're, we're spaced uh, um, six to maybe at the most 10 feet apart, um, you know, moving very quietly. And at the bottom of the saddle, they ran into a red ball. Uh, I'm not sure if you know. Anyway, it's what was a high-speed trail. Um, and okay. uh, it, was, it was coming out of one valley going across the, uh, the saddle on the ridge and down into the next valley. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of activity on the trail, so a lot of uh, boot prints. Um, and so we were crossing this one at a time. The fellow in front of me stopped and was waiting for a signal to proceed forward and never, never received that signal or it didn't see it. And so we sat and we waited and we waited. And while we're waiting, uh, he spies something down the red ball, uh, down the red ball to our right. And um, down the valley, he sees um, a, a North of Knees and then someone behind him. Uh, uh, and their patrol beginning to come up this red ball. Um, and he turns to me, uh, alerts me to what he sees, uh, just hand signals. Um, and I turn to the guy behind me. And, I had to kind of wake him up by throwing a little stone at him. Uh, we were all kind of locked and loaded. I could not see anything. The guy behind me couldn't see anything. Um, <clears throat> but Phil, who was in front of me, I uh, could see uh, see these guys coming up. He opens up on them. Uh, and they immediately, and was a number of them, uh, opened up on him and on, on all of us, I guess, uh, assuming, or, or at least in the area of us, me and uh, Jerry behind me. Um, and both, uh, opened up and started firing on them. Uh, uh, Phil was hit, uh, in the foot, uh, and just, uh, kind of blew mm. the front of, it, of his foot off, uh, mm. or, or if not off, it smashed it all to pieces. Yeah. Uh, I did have, uh, a round go under my boot. I, I could feel it. I go under my boot, <sighs> so between my boot and the, uh, uh and the earth. Wow. Um, and, uh, and it was over so quickly. I mean, uh, 
I, I think I went through 40 rounds, uh, two magazines, uh, and, and probably 38 rounds because because we, uh, at that time, we never filled them up. Sure. Uh, and um, and then very quickly, uh, you know, people from uh, guys who had crossed the red wall started coming back down. Guys behind us began coming down. Uh, I went over to uh, check Phil out very quickly, but uh, immediately the medics were there and uh, guys with 16s. Um, and, and that was really the action. It was an action very quick. And personally, I don't think I did anything that any infantryman wouldn't have done. I'm not sure that they would have gotten a bronze star for it. I, I don't know for sure. I, I think um, the uh, company commander... Uh, Maybe it felt because who I was that I should be put in for that. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure, um, but uh, it's, you know, I look at it and I think to myself, so many guys did so much more than I ever did um, mm. that um, it's, uh, I, I'm glad I have it, but uh, it's not something I usually bring up. Gotcha. It sounds like it was a, just a quick skirmish. Quick fight. Um, Is that, I mean, it sounds like you've had more experience in the field than that. Were there other actions that maybe weren't recognized that you witnessed that you're like, that should have gotten a bronze star? Not for you, but maybe for somebody else. Uh, There were a lot of other actions. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and there there were so many other people that were so much more deserving than I was. Um, No, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was a fascinating time. I also, as a journalist, and uh, and you maybe experienced this too, you know, I had these tremendous other opportunities. I traveled with uh, aviation units, um, I went out once with the uh, 2nd and 17th Cav, traveled with MedCap units uh, into the villages uh, in the uh, fall of 1970. Uh, northern part of Vietnam got hit with a uh, major typhoon. Uh, which uh, just uh, flooded so many uh, of the villages. And so I got to go out uh, with um, assisting these guys, uh, assisting the- uh, More of a humanitarian thing. uh, Very humanitarian. Uh, Got very close with uh, a couple of the interpreters uh, and, uh, you know, went to their homes. It was just an amazing experience. And and as I say, I was on a mission to learn everything I could. told some, someone else and I explained it, I said it this way, that for at least the first nine months there, I had no fear. And when I said that, when I thought about what I said afterwards, I didn't mean it as though, you know, I was somehow brave or courageous. Uh, it, it, these things just never entered my mind. Fear, fear never entered my mind at that time. Because coming home was not in the mind at that time. No, I, I, not at all. And it wasn't, really wasn't until um, I think I became in so many ways the senior guy in my unit and uh, and I had these uh, uh, platoon and company commanders asking me to come out with them, uh, not as a journalist, but as uh, someone who was experienced in the AL. And I think that scared me more than anything else, but uh, it starts pretty late in my tour, but we're getting a lot of uh, uh, in-country transfers. They, they came from a number of different units. At, th- at that time, um, when you get into uh, 70, 71, almost all the um, combat action is south of the DMZ and along the Aleutian border. 
uh, down to Khantum maybe, uh, uh, or Dakto. In the rest of the country, although there's, uh, there are some actions, it's not, it's nothing like it is, uh, up along the DMZ. Yeah, first, the fifth, first, the fifth mech was, uh, north of us, uh, along the plateau and 101st was basically in the, uh, you know, in the mountains. That influx of soldiers that were not in combat units, uh, also introduced, uh, a lot of heroin, uh, users, uh, into the 101st. Things changed drastically in the last couple of months I was there. And that drastic change, plus being a short timer, plus being kind of in this, uh, in this position where people are asking me my advice, um, I, I guess that, that scared the hell out of me. That your mortality, you were starting to see your own mortality a little bit. Uh, and that's probably what it was, although I didn't think of it that way. But when, mm-hmm. that, when the ammo dump blew, I thought we were under attack. And I was maybe the only guy that reacted that's way. And I was. And that probably scared you. <laughs> it scared me. It scared, I mean, I reacted so quickly. I had my weapon, my steel pot, uh, and I was in a trench, I think, before anybody else even looked around. Um, you know, so, I, you know. I, could, I could see where that would scare you. Like, where, where are you guys? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. You, you talked about. Um, going to, you know, getting to know your translators, going to their homes. Um, what's one thing about the Vietnamese culture that you learned out there that maybe someone doesn't know about? This may sound a little strange, but um, I kind of looked at the Vietnamese that I knew as the Italians of Southeast Asia. They're very close families, um, very similar to the way I grew up. Uh, many of them were Catholic. You know, people would talk about them, um, honoring their uh, ancestors. I grew up uh, after church every Sunday, uh, we would go to the cemetery uh, uh, to the graves of my grandparents. Uh, oh, wow. Know, and, and so, so many of these things seem so very similar to me. Uh, I, I just I just felt that I knew these people. Also, as a, as a soldier, I had a lot of respect for the enemy soldiers. Not for their cause, sure. but for what they were, what they were doing, what they were enduring, and how they operated. While you were in, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. My closest friend uh, uh, there and for, uh, for many years after, uh, unfortunately has passed since, uh, was my field partner, uh, Marcus uh, Letty. He was Mark Gilreath in Vietnam, changed his name back to his biological father's name after the service. Uh, and his biological father's name was Letty. So, so that, that's where uh, the Marcus Letty comes in. Um, but, but he was my field partner and uh, uh, we went out on a number of operations. He had been there a lot longer than I had been. He was pretty short uh, while I was there. And you know, he didn't want to go out on too many of these operations, uh, but he's the one who really got me going, uh, introduced me to a lot of people. As far as greatest mentor went, though, and this comes after Vietnam. After Vietnam, I um, served with uh, uh, the 72nd Field Artillery Group in uh, Germany, um, uh, where we, uh, the group controlled one quarter of all the nuclear-based, uh, land-based 
nuclear weapons in Europe. Okay. Um, and so this was a very interesting time. And now we're in 71, 72. The um, commander there at the time, Colonel uh, Harry Brooks, uh, we're in a time when there's a lot of a lot of agitation, a lot of uh, conflict in the service uh, racially. Mm. Um, uh, Brooks just knew what to do. In so many units in Germany, there were uh, what we called at the time race riots, but there's a lot of racial tension. And under Brooks, we had we had none. The headquarters was very understaffed. Um, as a Spec Five, I filled uh, the slot as uh, his race relations uh, I don't know, advisor or whatever you might call it. Um, but 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 really, it, it was he led the whole thing. I just followed what he was doing. He later went on to become. And he got a star and then went on to become the first head of the uh, Army uh, Equal Opportunity Office. Okay. As a mentor, um, he was probably uh, the person I learned the most about on race relations. Um, and, and, you know, and, I, and I, I feel indebted to him to this day. But yes, I, I think he was probably the, uh, uh, the fellow that I felt most mentored by. Very good. Very good. Now, what year did you get out, John? Uh, I got out in 72. And actually, I got out early. Again, the military was in this reduction of force. And so I got out early uh, on uh, the agreement to spend six years in the Connecticut National Guard. The initial coming back from Vietnam, what was that experience like for you? I mean, you did go to the National Guard and all that, but what was it like coming home to Americana? You know, we always hear, my generation always hears the stories of it wasn't as welcoming as what, as what it was when we came home. Again, I had, again, probably kind of a different experience than a lot of people. Never did get uh, a um, our, our steak dinner that we were all told we were going to get. Uh, <laughs> right. They told you uh, that? <laughs> well, yeah, we, 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 this was a big thing. Supposedly when you got back from Vietnam, Everybody got this uh, this steak dinner, and uh, no, that was uh, fake news. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> At least when I came back, uh, yeah. you know, we we went through a quick processing, but uh, I wasn't out processing because I had uh, uh, because I was going to Germany, so yeah. I, I was really just uh, coming in and uh, um, getting your next set of orders. Getting the next set of orders, and flew to New York. Um, um, took a, you know, I'd call my folks, let, let them know what was going on. Um, they were going to come in and pick me up in New York and says, you know, don't bother. It wasn't important. Um, uh, I took the limousine uh, from the airport uh, to where it was in my hometown, uh, Stratford, Connecticut. Um, and it was about, oh, maybe three quarters of a mile walk from uh, where they dropped me off to my house. So I just simply walked home I walked in and said hi to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but you never received uh, uh, getting off the bus in the uniform or getting out of the airport in the uniform. And I, I never uh, had that experience. Uh, well, I know a lot, a lot of your generation did. Uh, well, I, I did have some nasty experiences in France. Uh, so while I was in Germany, um, really? as a, uh, as a troop, you know, of course we have sh short hair and some very good friends of mine, uh, and myself, uh, you know, we would travel and uh, on one trip we went to Paris and 
I can remember being on the Champs-Élysées, eating at a cafe. You know, we're, we're having the time of our lives. So we're, we're loving this. Sure. And having people come by, spit on us. Um, you know, so that was the way Parisians felt about Americans in 1971. Wow. Some people claim that no one was ever spit on. Well, personally, I was never spit on in the United States, but I was spit on in France. And I know a lot of people that were spit on here. Um, and if not, and some who maybe not were spit on physically, an awful lot of us were spit on um, figuratively. Yeah. And I know the, the pendulum swung extremely the other way when, when we came home from Iraq and Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. I know that. Good. <laughs> you know, and, and I know that it was something that you guys never got, but I think it was a cross that you guys bore. So we did get that. So I do want to thank you for, for, for enduring that cross that, you know, and, and your whole generation. So I, I really, we, we are really, if, if there's anything that you can take away from that time, just know that our, our generation is extremely grateful for what you guys endured because it allowed us to enjoy a proper welcome home. So thank you. Good. Well, yeah, yeah I think you know, there, there's no thanks needed or necessary. Uh, I mean, I know that. As, as Americans, these are things, you know, we need to do for, not just for uh, the next generation of veterans, but for the next generation and the following generations after that. Absolutely. Now, your, your bio says you've sold 1.4 million books. Now, did you dive right into writing books after getting out or did you transition into something else first? How did writing became become a profession for you? I, you know, I, I started writing the 13th Valley probably in 72. Uh, I wrote a rough draft, uh, which was horrible. And, um, uh, and it wasn't going anyplace. I didn't really have an idea of what I was doing. Yeah. Um, got my real estate license in Connecticut. My father was, uh, uh, was a realtor and was going to go to work for him. But uh, it's like, so many veterans, uh, so many Vietnam veterans. Uh, I, I don't know what percentage it could be. Um, it's got to be at least half of uh, the veterans I know did not stay in their hometowns, but went and what I will call, let's say, did a self-expatriation, uh, if not to another country, within the United States. And so I went to California I, and I lived in California for uh, about seven and a half years. During that time, I got my real estate license in Connecticut, didn't have any income. So when I got to California, I got my real estate license out there. In between things, I always did a lot of uh, small construction jobs, um, both uh, here and uh, in Connecticut and and in California. But once I got my uh, real estate license at the end of 74, my next door neighbor was the Marine Corps recruiter for the area. And he and I would get together and he had more information about what was going on in South, uh, South Vietnam and Southeast Asia than I did at that time. Mm. And we began looking at things and uh, began getting more and more information, watching the news. Dude, this is uh, post-Watergate. So this is during the Ford era. Gotcha. Uh, no support for Vietnam publicly. Uh, and... Uh, what support there was was certainly much less in Congress than amongst the public. Mm. And we're watching this. And, uh, late 74, 
he had gotten word somehow about veterans going back. Um, and we met with a group of, uh, uh, the first meeting probably uh, 40 to 50 uh, bit, uh, non-vets on beginning to organize to go back. Didn't learn until later that actually Ross Perot was behind this whole movement. He was going to put the money up for it. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, there were a couple of meetings after that. Turned out there were nearly 100,000 vets around the country willing to go back. But a, th- a couple of things uh, with the group that I was with was uh, we were told that we wouldn't be getting any weapons until we landed in South Vietnam, which made a lot of us nervous. But the biggest thing was... Oh, this wasn't going back to, to visit like where you, where you spent your formative years. This was good to go back to fight? Yeah, this was to go back to keep South Vietnam from falling to the North Vietnamese. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, there was a big movement to do that. Wow. Uh, I did not know that. It probably got very little, you know, and this is all civilians at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's like contractor. It'd be like a contractor thing. It would be the equivalent of what we see as contractors today. Uh, yeah. Although the contractors today are much better organized. Sure. This sounds like this was the formative years of that. <laughs> it, it, it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but South Vietnam fell so quickly that this didn't come off. Gotcha. But, um, you know, and it's years later that uh, it's after 13th is published that, uh, you know, I really learned what happened in Southeast Asia, how that whole thing fell, what the North Vietnamese did, what the um, South Vietnamese were going through, what the Soviets and the Chinese uh, were supplying the North. When you get into 74, uh, 74, 75, the Soviets and Chinese were supplying the North Vietnamese at a level 400% higher than their previous high, which had happened, if I recall correctly, in uh, 67 leading up to the 68 um, Tet Offensive. Wow. At that same time, the U.S. was uh, supporting the South Vietnamese at a level, if I recall again, I, I may be off on this figure, but at a level of 1% of the highest budget the U.S. had had for Southeast Asia. Wow. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the South Vietnamese became the poor army against the North Vietnamese rich army. Uh, the South Vietnamese had to kind of pull back uh, forces to the populated areas. The North Vietnamese were able to run uh, – a 12-inch gas pipeline, a four-inch uh, wow. uh, oil pipeline down across the DMZ through um, the Ashaw Valley. Uh, these are all the areas that we that we had fought in and denied them the ability to do this. Yeah, all the way uh, down almost to Songbi City. Um, it was that quarter that they were traveling back and forth with by you know, 75, using 18,000 military trucks, uh, transporting 400,000 uh, troops and had 500 uh, Soviet T-55 tanks, 175 millimeter artillery pieces. Um, I mean, this was a massive invasion uh, of the South. And this is what the South was putting up against. This is what the South fell to. And whenever you hear somebody say, oh, the South fell to uh, the Viet Cong, to uh, people clad in uh, black pajamas, I'm sorry, it's just, it couldn't be a stupider, dumber statement. And there are so many supposedly historians that seem to have their 
information on the war, uh, their data on the war stops in 1968. Again, we were supplying them so little, they had to pull back their military. The uh, Arvin 22nd Division, um, of their three brigades, they had to use one brigade as a farming brigade to produce food for the other two brigades. Um, can't win a war like that. Yeah, yeah, you can't win a war like that. Was the 13th Valley like a, an attempt to try to talk about that part? Or um, what was the process like writing that first book? You kind of mentioned it earlier. Yeah, much more of this is in the second and third books. Okay, uh, because because I didn't I didn't know all of this at the time I was writing Thirteenth Valley. Gotcha. Um, you know, Thirteenth uh, Valley was written mainly. I think I said this before. It's mainly written about the hundred and first during this time and what I knew about what was going on in the areas that we were protecting. You know, I got a good feeling for this whole area. So I was writing about the area. I was writing about the, our tactics at that time, what we were experiencing. Um, and I was not really writing about what happened afterwards. Uh, as sometimes I say it this way, I was writing to set the record straight for who we were, not realizing that who I was writing about was the probably the average American soldier in Vietnam going back to uh, 70, uh, 62, 63. Uh, and, you know, and I've heard from people, uh, you know, all over the country and indeed in many parts of the world, uh, 13th Valley was published in, uh, in France, uh, in England, in Israel, uh, in the Netherlands, published in a number of different languages, uh, heard from uh, people from all these countries, you know, and over and over again, it's the same story saying, you know, thank you for telling our story. You talked about that and I saw that and I watched the open road video about where, where you talked about the feedback that you got from 13th Warrior. Uh, obviously, it was a very successful book. You know, in the days of, of before email, you got a bunch of letters. Oh, yes. Talk to, yes. Talk to me about those letters. I mean, it was amazing. The first set was almost all from veterans. Mm. The second set was almost all from spouses, mothers and fathers, uh, brothers and sisters of veterans. Mm. Um, the first set over and over again saying, you know, you're, you're telling our story. Um, the second set, so many of these people said, my husband, my son, my brother, uh, whatever, could not tell me about what he went through, but he handed me your book and said, uh, this is what it was like for me. Wow. That was repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. To, to get those letters over and over again, it just had to be a, an experience for you as well. Um, uh, it, it was stunning. It was shocking. It was uh, so educational. Um, and it also introduced me to some people that basically gave me a much deeper education on the war in Southeast Asia. So that's where you started learning about all this stuff in 73 and 74 and that's where I began learning all about it. Uh, gotcha. uh, one particular uh, uh, veteran uh, spent a number of years there and was back there um, with the State Department. Uh, spoke um, fluent Vietnamese, lived uh, for quite a while in the Vietnamese community. Uh, a fellow named Bill Lorry. Uh, he's by far the best historian on Vietnam that I know, uh, Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Uh, when I wrote 13th Valley, I had not anticipated writing a second book. Um, mm. but, uh, after, after I wrote it, I won the 
publishers are pushing me to do another one. Um, sure. And if they see the success of this one, they're like, keep going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so they wanted me to do one on the homecoming experience, uh, which is what Carry Me Home was all about. Okay. But, uh, so I started Carry Me Home uh, shortly after. And I was having trouble because I was uh, wanted to do a story, Marines, Army, all, all the services, but plus Southeast Asians. And so I had characters who were um, Vietnamese and Cambodian. And I was having trouble jumping back and forth while I was writing and trying to do this in some sort of lineal fashion. Sure. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do the Cambodian story first. It's going to be the shortest one. Um, and, uh, and then I'll do the Vietnamese story and then I'll do the other stories and I'm going to take these sections and I'm just going to take it like a, like a deck of cards. I'm going to shuffle them together, uh, and see where it goes. Well, I never did get to that point. As I began working on Cambodia, I spent five years researching Cambodia, writing about Cambodia, um, uh, interviewing uh, refugees, reading uh, uh, other interviews of refugees, uh, source interviews. Uh, on a, it, it was, in some ways, the most depressing period uh, and the most enlightening period of my life. Um, oh, wow. One of the a common expression in the 60s and 70s uh, was there's no such things, there's no such thing as good and evil, there's only shades of gray. Mm. Um, you may have heard that or not, but that was very common at that time. And I guess I probably su subscribe to it uh, to some extent. Yeah. Um, but it was on uh, reading and researching and uh, interviewing uh, Cambodians and, and, and people who served in Cambodia um, that I, I came away from that experience absolutely believing that there is such thing as evil. I can only imagine. I, I would spend 10, 12 hours a day um, working on this. And then I would come in at night and I would watch the silliest. Uh, I would watch uh, sitcoms uh, on TV and laugh my head off. Try to lighten the mood up a little bit <laughs> after reading about the Karma Rouge. Yeah. You know, it, it was that whole that whole thing. It wasn't a matter of even lightening the mood up. It was a matter of uh, trying to maintain your sanity. Wow. What happened in the writing was I got into this uh, and, and all of a sudden this section, which I was expecting to be about 60 pages about this uh, um, Kamaru soldier, th this manuscript got to the point of about 300 pages and I'm going, oh my God, now what do I do? And so I talked to my uh, editor at Bantam at this time, Peter uh, Gazzardi. Yeah. Um, and Peter came uh, to the house and sat down and much quicker reader than I am. But he sat down and read the first half. Uh, he read the entire manuscript, uh, the Cambodian portion. And he just turned to me. I think he must have spent about four hours doing it. And after four hours, he turned to me and said, this is your story. Uh, he said, finish this. He said, go back to the other one later. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's how, um, um, uh, for the sake of all living things, came about. Uh, gotcha. And that, that was the, uh, so that was the second book. And that, that also did very well. In my mind, that's the best written of all my books. Gotcha. It's a very difficult book to read for many people because uh, there's so much torture that goes on uh, that's, so, uh, that's involved in it. 
Um, uh, and yet, when I look at it, I didn't include a quarter, or maybe not even a fifth of the different kinds of tortures that I read about. Wow. Um, uh, that's how horrible that whole experience was. Wow. The book was picked up by the Chicago Police Department and used as supplementary reading um, in teaching officers and, and exactly what the department was, I'm not sure, um, uh, in how gangs operate. Interesting. All right. So in because there's a section in taking this young uh, Cambodian boy who is taken from his family uh, and becomes a ruthless uh, Yotha Kamaru uh, uh, soldier. And that whole process uh, is what the uh, Chicago police tapped into and said, this is what's going on in gangs also. It's not just simply physical indoctrination. It's uh, killing the person who was a young boy and re uh, you know, having them reborn into this organization that they're in, yeah. um, whether it's a gang or you know, whether it's Khmer Rouge. You know, one of the things in my books, um, uh, they are novels uh, and they're novels because of the way I put them together. But most everything that goes on in these books happened. Um, they're, they're, they're based in historical fact. Uh, they're based in historical fact and in personal uh, in personal stories. Now, oh, wow. personal, uh, you, you know, a, now a character in a book is not necessarily one character, one person from outside. It's a, you know, he's probably, he or she is a composite of many people. Makes sense. Um, and, and, and including me as the writer, you know, there's some, there's part of you in every character. Yeah. Um, it's funny because that you say that because it, you know, in film, sometimes it's, it's a composite of many characters in a book. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about how your book is a, is a composite of many characters in real life. Yes. So there's almost like a distilling of the story through every medium. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, but, but, but in, in order to write, you have, I, I think you have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you're writing under Dale Dye's warrior publishing group, uh, fellow combat correspondent in Vietnam. Yes. Uh, seems to be veteran run veteran writers. What's that experience been like? It couldn't be couldn't be a more positive experience. Uh, both Dale and his wife Julia are absolutely wonderful to work with. And after working with uh, uh, numerous New York publishers, yeah. Um, uh, so if you compare that with what Julia and Dale are doing, uh, you know, of course they're a much smaller publisher. They don't have uh, uh, the assets behind them in, in order to promote the way the uh, big. Uh, companies do, but they're so much more honest. Um, and, and that's about, that's value in itself. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, oh, there, there's incredible value there. Um, yeah. And, and, and they're very good at, uh, at what they do, you know, um, you know, and, and I gotta say, I mean, I, I love being with them and, uh, I, I love them as people. Very good. Very good. Uh, talk to me about, uh, Writing, I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, you know, with the publishers and everything. And I'm sure someone clicked on this episode because it said author, you know, part of your bio said, you know, part of the headline is going to say author. The writing profession, much like music, has changed drastically in the past decade due to to digital media. Uh, For the veterans that are getting out now want to start writing as a profession, what advice would you have for them? You know, because it has changed so much, 
Um, and one of the things that I'm seeing in, uh, in publishing is that publishers are interested in authors that have an audience already, and particularly if they have a major online audience or are on radio, have radio programs or have uh, yeah. television programs. Yeah. Uh, so you have, uh, you know, these mega books that come out and then you have like everybody else. Um, uh, you know, a, a successful book today that is not uh, through, that is not a mega book uh, is probably selling, um, you know, 10 to 25,000 copies. Uh, and that's considered, that's, that's really considered, uh, a, you know, very successful from smaller publishers. Hard to make a living that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, d develop an audience, but understand where, what the market is today and how it's working because it's very different. Now it was very, very odd breaking into the market in, um, you know, and this really goes back into the seventies so in the late seventies. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm trying to uh, find someone to even look at uh, my manuscript. Um, probably took a year to get anyone to read it. And then, for someone to say, you know what, this this is too big for me. I'm going to get this out to somebody else. I've got to get this to a uh, a major uh, agent. Yeah. Uh, and it was through um, through that system that I got a major agent, and um, that agent read the first uh, oh I'm going to say 30 pages of the manuscript and said I have to have this book. I said to him, How can you say that? You haven't read it. You know, you've read, you know, a thousand page manuscript. Yeah. Um, and I said, you know, you, you've read 50 or 60 pages. And he said, get the whole thing to me. Very, very enthusiastic about it. Um, little did I know that there had been a uh, seminar of uh, heads of all these publishing houses in New York um, months earlier. Uh, and one of the topics they had uh, talked about and conclusions they had come to was that the Vietnam novel has not been written yet. And that's when uh, 13 Valley hit this particular agent and he said, this is it. And so that was, that's what um, Bantam saw. It's funny that you said that um, publishers want a built-in audience when that used to be the role of the publishers or to bring you the audience. Yeah. And nowadays they're looking for that. You have to already have a built-in audience. I, and I see that a lot with a lot of writers now. And it's just very, very interesting. Cause then you get into the role of like, why do I even need a publisher? They're self-publishing now. And, yes. You know, all kind of, you know, is your marketing that good? So it very, it's a very interesting time. I think as for, if you're looking to be a professional author of what's going on in the industry, I don't think, and I don't think we're, we're at the end of that, uh, that, that evolution. A very tough time. Yeah. A very, very tough time to break into it. Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you, even with myself, uh, as successful as most of my books have been, um, you know, I, I still in between books and um, uh, even currently, um, uh, I do a lot of construction work. Gotcha. Uh, so, so I go back to that and, um, and, 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 and I enjoy the physical work. Sure. Absolutely. Now, your most recent book, uh, you just you just released one, Demise, a novel of race, culture wars, and falling darkness. Yes. Is it fiction as well? Yeah. Yes, it is fiction. Um, 
It, uh, it's kind of a follow-up in many ways to all these other books, uh, although it's very different in that although there are uh, veterans in there, there's uh, uh, also, and actually probably the main character is a non-vet. Now, this I'm very geometric uh, in the way I write. Okay, so I see um, a geometric pattern uh, in the books as I'm writing them, and even as I'm uh, first uh, putting the story together. Um, Demise is written uh, in concentric circles. The innermost circle is the main character's suicide contemplations. Um, and uh, then the circle around that is everything that's going on uh, in his contemporary life. The, the first, uh, the inside circle is uh, seven days long. The What's going on around him is about the 100 day story of leading up to this period uh, of his uh, of his suicide contemplation, and then the outer circle are all these flashbacks that give you um, his history, uh, his family history, what has brought him uh, to uh, the point he was in the hundred days, and again, what brings him to this final period in his life. Um, but in there, and there's. As he was growing up, so this is in one of the flashbacks, uh, in high school, he's a uh, running back on his high school football team. Um, he's a white guy. Uh, his best friend uh, is a black guy, also a running back. They're known as the uh, salt and pepper running backs of their, uh, uh, of their high school team. Uh, they lead them to the state championship game. He, his best friend, goes to Vietnam. Uh, he drops out and gets into the drug culture. Um, and he goes to uh, college, but um, doesn't graduate. Uh, finally goes, uh, finally meets a woman that um, kind of gets him back on course, goes back to college, uh, finishes college, uh, um, has a family, moves to uh, a suburban area. And in the suburban area, he finds his friend who after Vietnam, has gone to college, become uh, a uh, chemical engineer, is working for a uh, big corporation in uh, the neighboring city. They get together over their own children. Uh, they, they reestablish their friendship. And much of the story, uh, if this 100-day story, is about what's happening with each of these two families. Um, uh, in as it's juxtaposed between the city and the suburbs, uh, between veterans and non-veterans. Why did you want to write a book like that? I guess a lot of it was because I was experiencing so much of it myself. Um, not quite in the way it happens um, in the uh, in the story uh, in the, in this book, but um, it seems like a very different style book than what you've written before. Well, it, it goes very deep into the families and into uh, the characters and, you know, into things that happen in business and corruption and, you know, and all these different conflicts, uh, polarization by race, polarization um, by uh, a city from a suburb from uh, exuria. It, it's very contemporary. And, and actually um, uh, one of the things I've been saying in, particularly with what's going on right now in the country. 
Um, I, mean, I tell people, you know, demise uh, important now more than ever uh, because uh, even though much of it was uh, uh, written long ago, uh, it, it's just so pertinent to what's happening today. Very good, very good. Now you also have a blog, uh, peaking at seventy, rediscovering American and self. Yes, it looks like you started it right when you're seventy. Yep, a uh, lot of hiking in there. Uh, episode two hundred three here on Born of the Battle, we had Army veteran Eric Schlimmer, who's known as a serial hiker. I think you two would get along well. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. Yeah, let me know what you think. Yes. Um, by the way, as a child of Washington State, I enjoyed your wife's photos of Mount Rainier and Mount Baker, and all the landscape photography. Period. She's very talented. I, 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 that's my daughter. Oh, that's your daughter. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. she. I thought, yeah, and you either either way, very talented photographer, yeah. very talented. Uh, she's got a small company. Uh, she lives in Tahoe, has a small company called uh, Wild Perspectives Photography. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, she, she is she's a great photographer. So she's a trained photographer. And that makes sense of why, because man, it was just some beautiful landscape photography that I saw there. Yeah, she, she does that, and also um, on the climb of. Um, uh, Mount Baker, um, uh, you know, she's in great shape. Um, and my, uh, my son, Adam, who lives out there, um, and who is a, uh, certified backcountry, uh, search and rescue EMT. Um, okay. And so, uh, those were the two that I climbed with. Uh, I would have never made it without them. Uh, <laughs> you know, At 70, uh, that's incredible. And it obviously keeps you in shape. Has the blog and hiking, is it, is it cathartic for some of you? For you in some way? Uh, it's cathartic. And one of the things I was uh, really aiming for was to, uh, to talk about, you know, and sometimes they call it the fourth quarter of life. Uh, so when we're in this quarter of life, uh, you know, there are inevitable um, obstacles and, you know, it, it, it has a terminus. We all know it. Yeah. Uh, so how can you stay resilient? And how can you overcome these obstacles that are thrown at you at this stage of life and, um, you know, and, and remain vibrant, uh, as vibrant as you can. Um, and, and so that's the way it started. Now, personally, I got hit myself with, uh, uh, with the obstacle of ulcerative colitis, which has uh, been a huge setback to me. Three years, I've been having a very difficult time with it. I think I'm finally getting it under uh, control, where I can get back to some uh, serious climbing. Uh, Good. And, and I'm looking. I'm so looking forward to doing some alpine climbing again. It's an amazing experience. John, what's one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? Leadership being my mission, my men, and me, in that order. Mm. People I work with, and I work with many veterans. Um, and, and including in construction, those people who see the mission first and their people second to me are very successful. And they're, you know, those tend to be very honest people and they're also very successful. People who reverse that order and say, me and Austin, it's me, mission and my people. Um, to me, those are the least successful people. Uh, yeah. So I think that's something 
that, that's something I learned in the service. Uh, uh, in the 101st particularly, uh, we had just, I mean, as a young soldier, I did not appreciate it anywhere near enough, but the leadership in the 101st was, uh, was just absolutely amazing. I, I will never be able to uh, thank them or uh, live up to who these people were and who they still, many of them still are. Very good. Um, John, is there a veteran nonprofit or an individual who you've worked wor- with or for or have experience with whom you'd like to mention? Currently, what I think I would say, uh, what I think is one of the most important organizations I, and there are many of them there. There's, there are some that are doing sure. uh, tremendous work, uh, but um, there's those, I think what I would say is most important historically, and it leads into all this though, would probably be Vietnam Veterans for Factual History, uh, which is uh, vvfh.org. Um, okay. If you really want to know what has gone on, these to me are the top historians in the country. It, they certainly go way beyond the um, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, both earlier and later. Um, uh, their, their personal experiences and as veterans, to me, uh, they destroy so many of the myths about uh, Vietnam. There, there's not a better source of information. And through them, going to all the uh, original sources um, you, you, you can't beat it. Yeah. John, is there anything else that I may have missed? Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, <laughs> is there any, anything else that I may have missed or, or didn't bring up that you think it's important to share to the listener or maybe, maybe a parting shot to the listener? Yeah. You know, I guess maybe one of the things that, uh, we haven't covered, um, is I did a book with, uh, Frank Gallagher, um, about protecting uh, Paul Bremer uh, in Iraq in uh, 2003, 2004. Uh, okay. It's, it's called the Bremer Detail. And this is something that I think I think we lose in many ways. Is so many contractors um, are really part of our brotherhood, right? Um, yeah. And in some ways, I think a lot of people look down on them and just say, oh, they're mercenaries or something, you know, I, 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 it's kind of like it's a bad word, but, but understand the contractors have gone through, many of them have gone through a, a lot of combat and a lot of uh, very uh, traumatic situations. They have no support uh, the way um, military veterans do. Um, and uh, they're part of our brotherhood. Uh, they, they should be. They, this should be known by uh, by all of our veterans. They have the same problems uh, our veterans have you know, with PTSD or uh, some portions of it. And um, you know, so it's just a reach out to them also. We served our country like those before us. The camaraderie is what kept me going. You know, it was a dangerous area. All of Vietnam was dangerous. I didn't know what to expect when I got back. For the first 10 years after I got out, no one would have known that I was in the service. I got home, got married two weeks later, got a job. 
We came back, built lives, families, and communities, but we still had challenges. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. I would have intrusive thoughts. Yeah, horrible nightmares. Services and support that can help are available for veterans. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor. I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one -on -one counseling. We found ways to move past these challenges for ourselves and for our families. At maketheconnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. The more I talk to people, family, friends, other vets, the better I feel. John for coming on Born the Battle. To learn more about John, you can go to anywhere books are digitally sold and type in his name or go to peakingat70.com. That's peaking at the number 70.com forward slash the hyphen journey. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week was provided by VA's Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital team honors a veteran with a short write-up on all of our social media platforms and on blogs.va.gov. You can submit your own Veteran of the Day by emailing a photo or two and a short write-up to newmedia at va.gov. Army veteran Marie Rossi was born in January 1959 in Oradell, New Jersey. She graduated from Riverdell Regional High School in 1976. She then attended Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where she majored in psychology and joined the ROTC. In May of 1980, she earned her bachelor's degree and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. In an interview with NorthJersey.com, Rossi's brother Paul said he was surprised when he found out she wanted to join the Army. He stated, That never struck me as anything she was interested in. But Marie was very adventurous, and I think she did it because it was an unusual thing for a woman to do at the time, breaking into the boys' club. In the first half of 1981, Rossi attended the Air Defense Officer Basic Course and then the Air Defense Command and Control Course. She then became an artillery officer with 3rd Air Defense Train Battalion at Fort Bliss, Texas. In 1985, Rossi learned to fly in the Officer Rotary Wing Aviator Program at Fort Rucker, Alabama. She became a pilot and then attended the Aviation Officer Advanced Class where she learned on how to fly the Chinook helicopter. Rossi flew Chinooks with the 213th Combat Aviation Company in South Korea from 86 to 87. She was then assigned to Hunter Army Airfield, Georgia. And in 1990, she became the commander of the 18th Aviation Brigade, Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 159th Aviation Regiment. In September of 1990, she deployed with her unit to Saudi Arabia in support of Operation Desert Storm. During Desert Storm, Rossi was a resupply pilot and flew numerous missions. She carried cargo to the advancing forces of the 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions. At this time, as many of us know, the military had a ban on women in combat. However, when the ground war started on February 24, 1991, Rossi's missions took her into enemy territory. Four days later marked the ceasefire of the short ground war. On March 1st, Rossi flew in bad weather at night, and unfortunately, her Chinook crashed into an unlit microwave communication tower in Saudi Arabia. Rossi and three other soldiers aboard died in the accident. She was 32 years old. Rossi was a major at the time and earned numerous medals, including a bronze star, a purple heart, and an air medal. In 1992, she was inducted into the Army Aviation Hall of Fame. 
Rossi also made history as the epitaph on her tombstone at Arlington National Cemetery forever reads, the first female combat commander to fly into battle. Army veteran Marie Rossi. We honor her service. Ready. Hey. Five. Ready. Hey. Five. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. Follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, Pinterest, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you are hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gunner. Firefight bullets fly day and night rain. Simplified till we're done of a campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the tune of falling brass. Russian-made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them, boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner bullets fly Day and night rain Simplify to or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one If this is 1982 uh, At the wall uh, the dedication of the wall in um, Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, I'm walking along with uh, my oldest son, who is now 40. Um, uh, and I have him on my shoulders. Um, uh, you know, I've got uh, a field jacket on. Uh, under it, I have a, uh, a red um, sweatshirt that says Vietnam Veteran on the top of it. And I'm walking with some other veterans. And uh, we go to listen to the speech, uh, to the speeches, and I turn around and I see a guy there. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen him, and I'm not even sure I knew his name in Vietnam. And I looked at him and I said, Tom Boyce. <laughs> it, just, mm. it, just, it just came out of me. I had, I had as I said, I hadn't seen him. Uh, he had been with Alpha Second of the 502nd. And, uh, and actually he's, uh, the basis for one of the characters, uh, in, uh, in the 13th Valley. Uh, gotcha. I hadn't seen him. 
didn't even remember I knew his name. And wow, it was at that time. And there, there were so many experiences like that. Uh, um, I, I spent uh, a fair bit of time down at the wall um, over the next uh, two years. The memories just come back. Yes. Uh, memories just come back that uh, um, you, you meet somebody or see somebody or see something, things that you did not know were in your mind uh, just explode on you. And wow. you and you see the whole thing all over again. Um, I, and it's, it's a fascinating and, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about this in a post-traumatic way, uh, but I'm talking about it in a, almost in the opposite, in a wonderful way uh, of these, in a cathartic and uh, a way of saying, holy cow, how could I have ever forgot this guy? Or how could I have ever forgotten that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and uh, came very, very close with Tom uh, for years and years after, unfortunately, he passed about two years ago. Uh, Sorry, but a, but a great guy. Um, and, um, yeah, so there's, uh, there are, there, there's a community, uh, I think of all of us and kind of an inner community that we, that each of us have, um, of those that are close to us. But, uh, I, I think that's, uh, that, that's the strength of who we are, um, as veterans.